right. Well, good morning, everybody. Uh, as I caught some of y'all on the front end of the service, but happy Mother's Day to everybody. Um, we are uh, blessed as a church with a lot of really amazing moms, and uh, we know that. Uh, and we really appreciate each one of you. So thank you guys so much uh, for just the job you do. It's incredible. And especially Stacy, you're downstairs. Uh, happy Mother's Day. Um, we really appreciate, me and the kids, really appreciate all you do. Uh, so, I wish I could say, um, I wish I could say that today's passage was relevant to Mother's Day, uh, but it's really not. So I'm not going to fake you out here. It, this is not a Mother's Day passage, okay? In fact, it's sort of the opposite of, I guess, what you would call a Mother's Day passage. And I think you'll see what I mean here in just a little bit. Um, but we are now uh, in our sermon series in Hebrews. We are in Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. And we're beginning this main section, the major section of teaching in Hebrews. And uh, it's, it stretches all the way from, really it begins in chapter 5, and then we get the warning passage we've been on for the last couple weeks. But then really properly in chapter 7, this, this major teaching section stretches all the way to the middle of chapter 10. And the whole section is what the author referred to back in chapter 5 as not milk uh, for spiritual infants, but as solid food for maturing Christians. And so go ahead and grab your Bibles or jump on your Bible app and turn with me to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 1 through 10. Uh, as you're doing that, uh, the other day I was listening to a podcast, and I sent in last week's uh, weekly email, we didn't get one out this week, but last week, uh, or two weeks ago I should say, uh, there are links to the Bible Project's series on royal priesthood. And uh, they do videos, they do podcasts, and it's really great. It's a really excellent resource uh, I really love those guys. They they love to nerd out on on um, biblical topics, and they most certainly nerd out on the book of Hebrews. And uh, one of the podcasts I listened to this last week was the two Bible Project guys, and then they were interviewing a Hebrew scholar uh, from Wheaton College named Dr. Amy Peeler. And uh, given the fact she's a Hebrew scholar, she seems like a really normal person, so that should give all of us encouragement. Uh, but she loves Hebrews, and she's got a, a passion to better understand and help other people better understand the letter to the Hebrews. And she said that when people ask her what she does and they find out that she's a Hebrew scholar, uh, Hebrews, the book of Hebrews scholar, she also knows the biblical language Hebrew, uh, but when they find out that she specializes in this particular book of the Bible, she said that she always gets the same two questions. Number one, they ask, who do you think wrote the letter? Who do you think the author of the letter to the Hebrews was? And then secondly, they ask, who in the world is Melchizedek? <laughs> and uh, today, the unknown author of Hebrews, and I'm not going to pretend that I know who that was, but the unknown author is going to address that second question by walking us through the only two passages in the Bible, in the Old Testament, I should say, that speak of this Melchizedek, this mysterious character. And so we have Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 through 20, which was written by Moses. And then we have uh, Psalm 110, verse 4, which was written by King David. And uh, the, the inspired author, as we're going to see, the, the author of the Hebrews, the author to the, of the letter to the Hebrews, 
has clearly been a careful reader of both of these texts. Uh, For instance, uh, Psalm 110, I don't know if you knew this or not, but uh, Psalm 110 is considered to be a messianic psalm. That means it's considered to be uh, specifically referring to the coming Messiah, the Christ, the anointed one of God, all right? This coming king in the line of David. And so uh, it's a messianic psalm written by David, and it is the most quoted Old Testament passage in the entire New Testament. Uh, but most of those New Testament quotations that you see in, in the Gospels or the Book of Acts or various letters, most of them focus primarily on verse 1. And we see, uh, it's the familiar, you know, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your, for your feet. So we see that time and time again, uh, referenced by Jesus and his apostles. Um, but our author, the, the, who wrote the letter to the Hebrews, he, he goes on, he reads on past verse 1, and he reads on to verse 4. And it's in verse 4 of Psalm 110 that he picks up this really fascinating theme of the Messiah's priesthood. And then he traces it back to, to David's source material in the, the, the first book of the books of Moses, the book of Genesis. And one of the problems that we face with Bible study is that we can easily make either too much out of a passage, uh, a verse in Scripture, or we can make too little of the details of Scripture. On the one hand, we should never be dismissive of any scriptural details, okay? Since every word in Scripture has inspired meaning and it matters to our understanding of God and His Word. On the other hand, we also don't want to go beyond God's intention for the text that we're reading by reading into that text our own opinions and speculations. And that has certainly plagued uh, both ancient Israel and the church uh, in various you know, cults throughout the years as well. So we never want to read into it more than is, is meant to be read into it. As modern readers, uh, when we read today's passage, and maybe you felt like this, especially if you've been going through the men's or women's studies, you've already uh, seen these passages we're going to look at today. And maybe when you read them for the first time, you kind of came to the conclusion that the author is playing sort of, sort of fast and loose with scripture and is basically making a mountain out of a molehill, or in this case, making a mountain out of a Melchizedek. Um, But that's where we would be wrong this morning. The big idea for today is that Scripture often provides what the author calls solid food in some really unexpected places in the Bible. In today's passage, we see how to make a meal, uh, biblically speaking, out of the mysterious Melchizedek. And some basic Bible study steps are going to make this a three-course meal as we work through it today. So first, we're going to uh, look at observation. We're going to observe along with the author. And and that observation is the the first step of basic Bible study method. And it, it asks the question, what does our passage say? What is the author saying? Then we're going to look at number two, interpretation. That's where you ask the question, what does it mean? And then thirdly, you have application, which is why does this matter? So let's look at each one of those in our passage. Observation, what does it say? Interpretation, what does it mean? And application, why does it matter? So first, what does our passage say about 
Melchizedek. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. And, and here we see a summary of the author's observations about Melchizedek from the only two places that we read about him in Scripture. In the Old Testament, which is Genesis 14 and Psalm 110, as I already mentioned. The author, we can tell, carefully observed Genesis chapter 14, verses 17 and 20. He had access to that passage. Uh, so let's look at those four short verses in Genesis. And here we have the background of Melchizedek, okay? So Genesis 14, 17 through 20 says this. And it's in the context of a broader story, and we could spend weeks and weeks on its, uh, the importance of its context and the narrative of Genesis and the importance of where it fits in the overall structure of the Pentateuch, the first five books of Moses. But we're not going to do that today, okay? I just want to read you these four short verse, verses today. It says, starting in verse 17, Then after his, that is Abraham's, return from the defeat of uh, Kedor Laomer and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him, that is Abraham, at the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, king of Salem, so two kings here, king of Sodom, uh, which of course we see uh, what happens to them later on, but the, the king of Sodom comes out, but then it interrupts, and it says in verse 18, And Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Now he was a priest of God Most High. He, he blessed him, he blessed Abram, and said, Blessed be Abram, uh, which was Abraham's name before God changed it. Blessed be Abram of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. He gave him a tenth of all. Meaning, Abraham gave to Melchizedek a tenth of all. Now, okay, let's consider how the author of Hebrews summarizes that, that passage in, uh, in the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 7, verses 1 through 3, our first three verses for today. This is what the author writes. Starting in verse 1, he says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So you see how he's summarizing that passage from Genesis? Who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, to whom also Abraham apportioned a tenth part of all the spoils uh, and he refers back to Melchizedek, was first of all, by the translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then also king of Salem, which is king of peace. And then in verse 3, without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. So the author tells us that Melchizedek was a king priest. And uh, Kevin alluded to this earlier, but that's a really significant mixing of roles in the Old Testament, okay? Uh, the, well, we're going to see this uh, later in the life of Christ, but Christ is the only one who's going to take uh, the roles of prophet, priest, and king, these three Old Testament roles, and he's going to embody all three of them. But in Israel, the, the king was specifically kept from also standing in the role of priest, okay? And when kings acted as priests, bad things happened, okay? 
So this is a really significant mixing of these roles of king and priest in the person of Melchizedek. And Melchizedek's name is, is probably uh, really a title, meaning uh, king of righteousness or righteous king. And then he was also the king of Salem. And that word uh, is associated with the word for peace. And it's actually the shortened version of, or the ancient name of the city that we know as Jerusalem. So he's the king of Jerusalem, or the king of Salem for short, which means peace. Uh, furthermore, Melchizedek was a non-Israelite. We don't have any record that he was, uh, well, he was actually around before Israel even came into being, right? Because he's there, you know, to meet Abram, who becomes Abraham, who becomes the, the father of Isaac, Jacob, whose name becomes Israel. So we're talking generations before Israel is even uh, really a thing, okay? So he's, he's a non-Israelite. He's probably a Canaanite priest of the Most High God, which assuredly was a reference to the one true God of Israel. So you have this pre-Israelite priest who's probably a Canaanite who is also mediating, he's acting as a go-between, he's mediating God's promised blessing to Abraham that we saw all the way back in Genesis chapter 12, where God promises to bless Abraham. And, uh, and we especially see that in Melchizedek's prayer of blessing in verses 19 and 20, where he invokes the name of Most High God, or God Most High, in blessing Abraham. And then the priest goes on to receive Abraham's gift of a tithe, which just means a tenth, of all of his spoils from that battle that God gave him victory in. And so when we move on to Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3, we see some additional observations that the author's making. We see that there, he observes that there is absolutely no mention of Melchizedek's birth, his parents, or his genealogy, which is really unusual. Uh, if you even just give a cursory glance to Genesis, one of the things you notice is that uh, genealogies were a really important thing. And so to have a character show up uh, who doesn't have any mention of his birth, his genealogy, uh, his death, which is another big theme in Genesis, that's an unusual detail, especially for someone who's a priest, given how much concentration is placed on the genealogy of priests of Israel later on in the Hebrew Bible. And this, this deficit of information leads the author to state that Melchizedek was, as it says in our passage, he was without father, without mother, without genealogy. So here we have the only character in all of Scripture who never once celebrated Mother's Day. Right, so that's why I was pointing out the irony at the beginning that this would be the passage that we look at on Mother's Day, right? The one guy who's never, uh, you know, celebrated Mother's Day. All right, that's a joke, okay? I think he actually had a mother, but it's just not in the text, okay? The point of the author's statement here is that the that genealogy wasn't a factor in Melchizedek's qualification to serve as a priest of the Most High God. And that is in a stark contrast to the priests of Israel, the priests, uh, the sons of Aaron uh, through the tribe of Levi, okay? Uh, they, they had to prove their genealogical background, their descent from not only Levi, but, but through Aaron, um, uh, the, the high priests came through him as well. So you have these Levitical priests, okay, that have to show their background, but then you have Melchizedek that there's no record of it, okay? 
there's also no record of his death, which, which gives the impression, at least literarily, it gives the impression that his life was unending. It never came to a close in the narrative of Genesis. And this leads to our second passage, okay? The author also carefully observed Psalm 110 verse 4. And he's connecting these two passages, okay? Because he knows that Psalm 110, which was written by David, you know, 500 years after, after Moses, he sees the connection here. So let's look at that verse in Psalm 110. And, and this is so crucial to the argument of the author in Hebrews chapter 7 and really to the entire letter, this uh, Psalm 110. So let's look at Psalm 110.4. I think it's going to come up on your screens as well. It says, the Lord, Yahweh, uh, the covenant-making God of Israel, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Here's this great oath that we're going to talk about. And this is what the Lord God says. He says, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. So based on carefully observing, observing this text and the earlier passage in Genesis that we looked at, the author of Hebrews makes some final observations about this, this Melchizedek figure. So look back with me at Hebrews chapter 7, verse 3. Again, he says, Without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, he remains a priest perpetually. So the author points out that Melchizedek is made like the Son of God, okay? And that's important. The Son of God is not made like Melchizedek. Melchizedek is like the Son of God. Psalm 110, as I mentioned earlier, was considered to be a messianic psalm, which spoke of the coming Messiah, the coming Christ, this anointed king and savior from God, okay? So the author observes that King David, who's writing this, views the priesthood of Melchizedek that, that he's reading about in Genesis 14. He views uh, Melchizedek's priesthood as a pattern or a type of, which would be fulfilled by Messiah. It's a pattern looking forward to ultimate fulfillment in Messiah. So for one thing, when we see this right there in the text, uh, when he mentions that you'll be a priest forever, uh, there's no mention of Melchizedek's death in the Bible. And so uh, King David picks up on that. Uh, the fact that there's no mention of not just his death, but there's no mention of his priesthood ever ending, okay, and being passed on to another. So in this way, Melchizedek resembles the, the coming Messiah, the Son of God, whose priesthood would be everlasting according to God's oath in Psalm 110.4. So it's, it's clear that the author of Hebrews was a careful reader of both Psalm 110 written by David around 1000 BC, and then Genesis 14, written by Moses uh, after the events of the Exodus. And, and just think about this with me. If you're getting lost in some of the trees, let's step back and look at the forest. As we step back and look at this portrait that the author is, is, is painting of Melchizedek, it's really striking. Melchizedek, think about this. He was a priest king in Jerusalem with a seemingly everlasting priesthood that was characterized by righteousness and peace and that was in no way dependent upon his genealogy. 
Melchizedek also mediated God's promised blessings to Abraham and to his descendants and received Abraham's reverent offering. Does this sound like anyone else in scripture to you? Of course it does. It sounds like Jesus the Christ, the Messiah. I remember um, my very first class in seminary was called Bible Study Methods. And one of the assignments was to write down as many observations as I could on just one single verse. Uh, Acts chapter 1 verse 8. Uh, about being the, his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. You remember this? Uh, so we would write them down and we turn them in. And then the next time the professor would say, okay, write down 20 more and on and on and on. He did this over and over again, kept requiring more and more observations. And I, I looked the other day and I ended up turning in a list of like 65 observations from that single verse. Okay. And the point of the assignment was to develop our skills of observation before we jumped to the next step of of interpretation. We needed to know that seemingly minute details like verb tense, for instance, matter when you're reading scripture. Uh, And the professor would always say that more time in observation always leads to better interpretation when you're doing Bible study. God gave us his word the Bible, so that we could read it over and over again throughout the ages together as the church. In doing so, we benefit from the careful observations of our spiritual forefathers and foremothers, and that's exactly what we get from the author of Hebrews in chapter 7, verse 1 through 3. So now let's move on to the next step in studying the Bible. Next comes interpretation. What what does all this stuff about Melchizedek mean? How do we interpret it? And for this, we turn to Hebrews chapter 7, verses 4 through 10, the second half of our passage. So first, the author interprets Genesis 14 and Psalm 110 to mean that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham. And this is going to be key for his argument, okay? He hones in on two specific aspects of Melchizedek's story that seemingly prove his superiority to Abraham, at least in terms of rank. Number one, Melchizedek blessed Abraham. And number two, Abraham tithed, gave a tenth of his spoils to Melchizedek. So look with me at verse four, and then we're also going to look at verses six and seven. So chapter 7, verse 4, the author writes, Now observe how great this man was, to whom Abraham, the patriarch, gave a tenth of the choicest spoils. And then 6 and 7, he goes on to say, But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them, i.e. is not traced from Abraham and Levi, uh, the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham, And blessed the one who had the promises, that is Abraham, who had received these great promises from God. And then he goes on to say this, he interprets it. In verse 7 he says, But without any dispute, the lesser is blessed by the greater. So Melchizedek has a superior rank because he blessed Abraham and not vice versa, and because Abraham tithed to him, to Melchizedek. Okay, secondly, The author interprets Genesis 14 and Psalm 10 to mean that Melchizedek isn't just greater than Abraham. 
he establishes that, but then he goes on to interpret Melchizedek as being greater than Abraham's descendants. And this is also a crucial step in his argument. So this, these Abraham's descendants included the Levitical priests of Israel, these priests that were descended through the tribe of Levi, uh, who was Abraham's great-grandson. So let's look at verses 5 and 6 and 9 and 10, and then we're going to jump back and look at verse 8 at the end. So 5 and 6 say this. The author writes, And those indeed of the sons of Levi, he's talking about the priests, who were active, by the way, in the, the time of the writing of the letter to the Hebrews. Okay, So he says, And those indeed of the sons of Levi, who received the priest's office, have commandment in the law to collect a tenth from the people, that is, from their brethren, although these are descended from Abraham. But the one whose genealogy is not traced from them collected a tenth from Abraham and blessed the one who had the promises. Now look at verses 9 and 10. And so to speak, through Abraham, even Levi, who received tithes, later on, paid tithes, for he was still in the loins of his father when Melchizedek met him. And then look at verse 8. In this case, mortal men receive tithes. But in that case, referring to Melchizedek, one receives them of whom it is witnessed that he lives or he lives on. So the Levitical priests received tithes from other descendants of Abraham who were essentially their equals. The author calls them their brothers. Okay, But Melchizedek, on the other hand, received tithes from Abraham, the great patriarch himself who was revered in uh, Judaism. And this revealed Melchizedek's superiority of rank, according to Scripture. And, in a sense, the Levitical priests who were collecting tithes, even in the time of the writing of Hebrews, these Levitical priests even paid tithes to Melchizedek themselves because they were, as he points out, they were uh, in the body of their ancestor Abraham when he tithed to Melchizedek. Okay, so this is all part of the argument that Melchizedek and his priesthood is superior to the Levitical priesthood. Uh, he, he points out that the Levitical priesthood was limited by mortality, by the fact that they died. And we're going to look at that more in the next two weeks. But Melchizedek's priesthood is marked by life. It says he lives or he lives on. And, and this represents an unending priesthood. Again, the absence of details related to Melchizedek's death provides a perfect pattern uh, which would ultimately be fulfilled by Jesus the Messiah, who would be resurrected, as we know, to an everlasting life in order that he would hold an unending priesthood in the very presence of God himself. So, now that we've observed and interpreted with the author, let's move on to the third course in our three-course meal of this, what the author calls solid food. So let's look at application. Application is where we ask the question, why does all this stuff matter? Why, do, why does all this stuff about Melchizedek matter? And whenever I'm talking to someone about, uh, and I've talked to some of you about this, but uh, obviously there are things that all Christians must agree on, okay? That would be like a quadrant one issue, okay? And I talk about four quadrants, and I don't know who I got this from. It's not something I came up with. 
But it's the idea that, that certain beliefs are absolutely required uh, to be believed on by all Christians. That's Orthodox Christianity, okay? But then as you get to quadrant two and quadrant three, and especially quadrant four, there's less and less of a need for complete and universal agreement on certain doctrines within the church. And, and we really need to know these, these things because we need to know when to major on the majors so we don't end up majoring on the minors, okay? And when I'm talking to folks about these doctrines, oftentimes I will use the, the, who Melchizedek was, the identity of Melchizedek, as a prime example of the latter category. These sort of quadrant four, like, hey, you take a guess, I'll take a guess, and you know, this is not going to divide the church or something, okay? But the fact that we don't know for sure who exactly Melchizedek was, because again, the Bible doesn't tell us, and there's been tons of speculation for centuries, millennia, throughout both the church and in Israel about who this is, wanting to fill in all the details of this guy's life. But just because we don't know exactly who he was, that doesn't mean that his story that is included in the Bible uh, and, and, and how it's used in Scripture, it doesn't mean that that's not significant, okay? And I want to spend the rest of our time considering just two levels of application. Why does this matter? First, let's look at why did Hebrews chapter 7 verses 1 through 10, along with the story of Melchizedek, why did that matter to the original readers of Hebrews who were mostly first century Jewish Christians facing incredible hardships and even persecution? Okay, why did, it, why did all this matter to them? Well, for one thing, the author was explaining why Jesus' priesthood was greater than, superior to the Levitical priesthood, which they had all become so familiar with in the context of Judaism. In fact, in, in just based on how you date the letter to Hebrews, within just a couple years, uh, Rome is going to come in and, and wipe out the Levitical priesthood. It's going to come to an end, Okay. And they, this is what they were familiar with. And so he's really wanting to prove, and he'll do this through the next couple chapters, why Jesus' priesthood was greater. And therefore, as they were suffering for their newfound faith in Christ as Christians, he urged them not to look backward to a lesser priesthood that they were familiar with, but to look upward, as he'll say later in the letter, to our great high priest in heaven, seated at the right hand of God the Father and also to look forward to the full realization of all of the new covenant blessings which are mediated to us through Jesus Christ our Lord. Okay, second, we must apply these ancient verses to our modern context as well, okay? We can't just roll our eyes at things we're not familiar with in Scripture, okay? We need to to do the hard work of observing and interpreting, but, but it's, it's an unfinished process in Bible study unless we get to the point of application. So let's think about this for ourselves in a modern context. Although the Levitical priesthood ended with the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in AD 70, when three Roman legions under the, the ruler, uh, rulership of Titus who would go on to become emperor of Rome, they came in and just decimated Jerusalem and destroyed the temple and with, with all of its genealogical records to, to show you know, proof of who could be a priest and all these things, all that gets destroyed in AD 70. So even though that happened, the priesthood of Jesus is absolutely indestructible. It can't be touched by any 
Roman legion or any uh, power or authority on this earth whatsoever or in heaven for that matter. It's indestructible and his priesthood is everlasting. And so what that means, folks, brothers and sisters in Christ, is that we have a high priest interceding for us today, today, right now, at the right hand of God the Father, seated at the right hand of God the Father, our priest king, Jesus Christ our Lord. And and we're going to get into the significance of this absolutely profound reality in the coming weeks. And it is good stuff, okay? It is solid food, so to speak. But for today, I simply want to encourage us by the fact that we have an advocate in Jesus Christ who will never leave us, who will never forsake us, who will always be with us even to the end of this age. Uh, Melchizedek provided an important pattern for the coming Messiah, Jesus. And think about this. As I, as I conclude, as I kind of tie this together, think about the pattern Melchizedek presented He combined the roles of king and priest with peace and righteousness. He was a mediator through whom God blessed Abraham in accordance with his great promises that we see throughout Genesis. The base of Melchizedek's operations for both his royal and priestly responsibilities was none other than Jerusalem itself. His priesthood wasn't based on his genealogy. And finally, it seemed as though his priesthood would be unending on account of a seemingly everlasting life. In all these ways, and probably more, Melchizedek was made like the Son of God. But Jesus wasn't just like what is being pointed to in all these observations from today's passage. He is the ultimate fulfillment of everything Scripture anticipated going all the way back to the beginning in the book of Genesis. This is a great example of a feast of solid food that can be found in an unexpected place in Scripture, the story of the mysterious Melchizedek. Um, Next week, we're going to shift the focus uh, from what was primarily on Genesis 14. We're going to shift that focus to to Psalm 110, and that psalm is going to dominate the rest of Hebrews chapter 7, especially verse 4, as we look more closely at the topic of priesthood. So let me pray for us. 